not publicly stating how many passed half a century now. We're going to start today with a short review, and I want to dismiss Bridge Kids. So, Bridge Kids, thanks for being with us. You reach a point in life where you don't tell people all of the details of keeping track of things like age and how long you've been married. So we want to start with review. And uh, we have been tracking Jesus in his approach to Jerusalem for many weeks, actually months. It's a long time coming. Let me just put this in perspective. In the Gospel of Mark, the first eight chapters deal primarily with Jesus' ministry, public ministry. And then the last eight chapters deal primarily with the last week of his life. When you get to the Gospel of John, there is less than a 24-hour period in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. The Gospels just slow down when we get to the last part of Jesus' life. And that's where we are in Luke chapter 23. I hope you'll turn there with me. Luke chapter 23. We're going to look at the first 25 verses. Now, by way of review, so uh, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem where his intentions are to lay down his life in God's plan to provide salvation to all of humanity. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem to a welcoming crowd on a Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday. Thousands of people lined the road into Jerusalem to welcome him and to give him praise. And they humbly laid down their coats, their outer garments, and some, some did palm branches. That's where we get Palm Sunday. And they just rejoiced because some of those people thought God is sending Messiah to deliver us, hopefully to deliver us from Rome. Now, after Jesus arrived, not very long, he went into the temple and he drove out the money changers and some of the merchants there selling things when the place of the temple was the house of prayer that God intended for all nations now, this upset the whole economy of the temple and the high priest and the leaders, religious leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, and they were jealous. They became angry. This had been brewing for a long time. It was Thursday that week that Jesus ate his last meal, his last supper with his disciples. It was on that occasion that he washed the disciples' feet as they entered. He predicted that Judas would betray him and that Peter would deny him three times. He instituted the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, that meal where the new covenant was explained and that the bread would represent the body of Christ and that the blood would represent uh, the new covenant, the new plan God had with humanity. Um, after that meal, they left the upper room in Jerusalem and they headed out into the Mount of Olives, headed toward the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And there they went and Jesus wanted to spend time in prayer. And that's often where they spent their nights when they were in Jerusalem. They didn't stay inside the city gates, they went outside. And Jesus asked them to pray with, the, with him. 
It was a very long night. That's when Jesus was arrested. And he appeared that night in three hearings, interviews, trials, whatever you want to call them. They were religious-oriented. First, they went to Annas, and he was the former high priest, and he was the father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas. Caiaphas. And Annas had his own ideas. Jesus is guilty, sent him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas gathered uh, some of the Sanhedrin, or Sanhedrin, and they were the religious leaders made up of the high priest, the elders of Israel, and some of the uh, Pharisees. These were all different groups, and they all had different views on things, but they came together on this one issue, and the issue is Jesus. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him three times. He goes to Annas, to Caiaphas, and then in the morning. And Luke speeds this part up. He doesn't spend all the time. John has a much longer time in explaining the night. Luke speeds it up. He comes to the last religious trial, and basically they're convinced he is guilty, but they can't do anything about it. They want him removed. They want to execute him, and they can't do anything about it because Rome is the governing authority they are the occupying nation, and Rome is the only one who can carry out capital punishment. So uh, they're going to take him to Pilate. Now, when you see what happens here, the Jewish religious machine works overtime to pull this off. Um, we, have, we have the Sanhedrin present at almost everything. It's like Jesus is just a rabbi, he's not trying to overthrow the government. And they got all these people out there sort of ganging up, and they come together. They have, the Pharisees didn't like the, the, the priesthood. They, were, they had opposing the, the, the Sadducees were liberal. The Pharisees were highly conservative. Now, for the setting, Luke 22, verse 53, just want to remind you, uh, Luke 22, 53. Every day Jesus, when he was arrested, this is what he said, I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. And that's what we see this night. Darkness reigns. Evil seems to be in charge. Sometimes darkness seems to reign. Evil seems to be in charge. God is in charge. All of these events demonstrate that. So it's early, early in the morning, Friday morning. It's right after sunup. You got all of the religious leaders present. And we come uh, to pol the political accusations that they will make before Pilate. Uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. I encourage you to follow along in the text. And that's the way you're going to benefit this from the most, is if you're following in the scripture. Then the whole assembly um, rose and led him off to Pilate. The whole assembly, that's the high priests, that's the elders of Israel, that's the Pharisees, that's about, the total official number is about 70. Now it doesn't mean actually everyone was there, but this is a huge group just for one person, Jesus. They led him off to Pilate, who's the governor of of Judea, the southern portion of Israel, called the procurator. 
And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if this man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So let's uh, talk this through. So three religious trials at night or hearings and now there's going to be three civil hearings or trials it's hard to say what's the legal trial or not we see the accusations in one and two from the whole assembly all of the Sanhedrin um, and they, they want to here's what the, there's a big switch here they, they have been up all night on religious grounds, what has Jesus done to violate the law of the Old Testament? And in their mind, they have the answer. Blasphemy, claims to be the Son of God, and he's not. Claims to be the Messiah, and he's not. However, that won't hold up in a Roman court. They don't care if Jesus is the Messiah. And so they're going to put a spin on it to make it look like Jesus is a political problem. He is a rebel. He's out to overthrow. He's trying to stir up trouble in Jerusalem that's going to uh, affect Rome. So that's the presentation that they have. We have found this man subverting our nation. Well, he's been influencing what people think of the religious leaders. Then they go on to say, what do you mean by that? Well, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar's Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. And all they know is all they have to do is throw that word out there, a king. And that's a word that speaks of opposition to Rome. And um, so, first charge, uh, he opposes payment of taxes to, to Caesar. True or false? What's the answer to that? Now, the religious leaders know this is untrue because they've already had an encounter with Jesus over this. In Luke chapter 20, previously, verse, Luke 20, verses 22 through 26, um, they come to Jesus. Their, their purpose is to find him at fault. Is, and so they ask this question, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity. He saw that what their motives were were different than the way they were acting on the outside. And he said to them, show me a denarius. This is the wisdom of our Savior on the spot. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. Next slide. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. It's pretty simple. So he, he doesn't oppose paying taxes to the government at all. In no way. But he does clarify to make sure that we pay the proper respect to God because he comes first and he wants all. He wants your whole life. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public 
And astonished by his answer, they became silent. So they knew this question, this, this charge was untrue. Second accusation, he claims to be Christ, a king, true or false. At his arrest, they asked this question, Luke chapter 22, verses 67 through 69. Here we go. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, I tell you, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. He is not going to give a direct answer. But here is an indirect answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. He focuses on two passages from the Old Testament. One about the Son of Man, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. One about being seated at the right hand. And that's Psalm 110, verse 1. Both of those point to the Messiah. The leaders understand that. So the grounds for the religious leaders initially charged Jesus with were related to the Old Testament law. But they're trying to push this idea that he's a rebel to, to uh, Pilate, that he opposes the government. Verses 3 through 6, so now Pilate must interview Jesus. And here's the question, Luke 23, verse 3. Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you said so. It's, he, applies, he replies to the affirmative, yes, it is true. Now, Sometimes this part gets left out. Pilate is a veteran administrator of law and order. Pilate has been around the block. He's actually known for being quite cruel, but his job is just to keep order. He doesn't have to like it. He doesn't have to like the people. He just keeps order. Problems arise, deal with it, done. That's, that's Pilate. But Pilate... He knows an insurrectionist when he sees one. Um, he knows a rebel of Rome when he sees one. He knows a freedom fighter when he sees one. And Jesus is not it. Jesus is a rabbi. He's a humble man. He's not trying to power up. And, and Pilate sees what's going on. Pilate sees the jealousy among the religious leaders of all the popularity and influence that Jesus has gained while he's been in Jerusalem. And so right away, verse 4, Pilate gives this uh, preliminary verdict. Before, I want to look at John 18. Okay, this is not in Luke. John records more. So this is a private conversation that Jesus and Pilate had and Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Next slide. Jesus answered, you say that I am. In fact, the reason I was born and came to this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So to Pilate... Jesus acknowledges that he's a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. There's no charge here. This man is not guilty. 
Pilate sees that. Verse 4, then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Not guilty. But there are further accusations. Verse 5, and the religious leaders, this is just, it's irrational, it's amazing. They won't give up. And there's a bunch of them. Imagine, I would guess there are if somewhere, it's got between 50 and 70, roughly. I, that's just my guess. It's, and, they're, they're, and, he, and they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. Now, I don't think he'd been all over Judea much. Certainly Jerusalem is in Judea. He was born in Bethlehem in Judea, but his ministry primarily has been in the north in the area of Galilee. And um, so here comes the pressure. This, is an, this has become an intense political situation. The Sanhedrin, this, the religious leaders, are the most powerful men in all, the, all of the nation. And Pilate has to deal with them. Jesus isn't the problem. They are the problem. Uh, and so... Pilate comes up with an idea. Is he from Galilee? Yes. Let's send him to Herod. So Pilate has a chance to wash his hands early of Jesus and to transfer a problem that he doesn't like. On hearing this, Pilate asked if he was a Galilean. He learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction. So Pilate's residence is not in Jerusalem. It's in the Roman uh, city of Caesarea, named after Caesar. Very beautiful place on the coast, west coast of Israel. Pilate does not want to be in Jerusalem, but Pilate comes to Jerusalem because it's swelling with thousands of extra people, hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem for the Passover. And Pilate has to keep peace. Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Pilate was in for the Passover. And he came because he was going to become the Passover lamb. Herod, Herod Antipas, is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great tried to put baby Jesus to death. Herod Antipas is the son. Now Herod's dad's kingdom has been divided up. Now Herod Antipas is supported is apportioned a small part in the north. He's that called that tetrarch, means it gets a little part. He's a Jewish man, not, not necessarily a religious man. He's primarily a, a political figure, and his job is to carry out, he's working for the Rome, Roman government, his, his job is to help carry out Roman justice. Um, Herod lives in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. He also has a place, uh, Macurus Fortress on the Dead Sea. He doesn't live in Jerusalem. He's there. Why? Because of the Passover. All this comes together at this time, at this occasion. And so in verses 8 through 12, we have a political, consultation, political consultation. This is politics, okay? Uh, and Verse 8, Herod eagerly awaits for this. 
Herod learns that Pilate is sending Jesus for another expert opinion. Herod is a Jewish man. Maybe he knows a little bit more about the Jewish issues than, than Pilate does. Maybe he can find something that will stick. Uh, but this is not a Judean issue. It's a Galilean issue. So let's send him to Herod. So verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. Not only is this a political matter for Herod, it is a personal matter for Herod. He is like a spoiled child with a toy when he gets Jesus. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Now, Jesus did miracles. They're called signs. Signs, miracles are to point to something. They point to a message and the messenger. Jesus is the messenger, and his miracles were to point to his message, what he was teaching. Jesus had performed many miracles in Herod's area in Galilee. Herod wanted to see a, mag a magician. He wanted to see the miraculous. He wanted to be entertained. He wanted to be wowed by Jesus. And that is not what Jesus is about. And then come the persistent questions. Verse 9, he, he plied him. Herod plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Herod was curious. But his curiosity wasn't about, I really want to know the truth. It wasn't about, Jesus, I want to know who you are, why you are here, what's your mission, what you are about. How do I fit? He, none of those were his questions. Herod wants Jesus to entertain him. Applies him with questions. Jesus is totally silent. We see this in Isaiah 53, uh, verse 7, how Jesus fulfills this. And Isaiah just takes a big uh, portion of the, the, this last night. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Clearly happened with Herod. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And this is going to frustrate Herod. Um, so, guess what? Guess who's there? The chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees. They have come to Herod's place to make sure that Jesus gets dealt with properly. Verse 10, constant allegations. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Uh, and so you got this... This is totally irrational. This huge group following around one man. And then we see the great reversal, verse 11. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. So it seems like Herod responds like a spoiled middle school kid who is offended that Jesus won't play his game. And so now he's going to make fun of Jesus. Now he's going to blame Jesus for making him feel bad. Um, he turns against Jesus because he feels slighted. And they put, uh, they put 
an elegant robe on Jesus. We don't know where it came from. Just might have been one of Herod's hand-me-downs. But they want if he's if he's a king, they want to sort of mock, uh, set him up, and mock him as a king. And we see the political outcome in verse. 12, that day Herod and Pilate became friends before they had been enemies. So this new alliance is formed because of Jesus. Pilate reached out to Herod. Herod had been snubbed by Jesus, and now he has been useful to Pilate because Pilate has allowed him to consult on the Jesus problem. Now they have a political relationship In verses 13 through 25, we see political expediency. We talked a little bit about this last week. So we're going to have another preliminary verdict, verses 13 through 16. Remember, Pilate has already said, not guilty to the charges against Jesus. So with Herod's examination, Herod, Herod couldn't find any charges either against Jesus even though he got his feelings hurt. Verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the, and the people. So this is now a much larger group. And he said to them, you brought me this man, Jesus, who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for charges against him. Not guilty. Verse 15, neither has Herod. For he sent him back to us, as you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, sometimes when they talk about that Pilate said, I will punish him, people think that, well, he's going to scourge him, and then he's going to release him. Probably not at this point. Probably no plan to scourge Jesus yet. You know, scourging was extremely brutal. I'll talk about that next time. Uh, Extremely brutal. And sometimes people died just after being scourged with the whip. And Pilate had something more lighter in mind. Yeah, he would get a few stripes, a few lashes from a whip, and then we'll let him go. says, therefore, I'll punish him and then release him. And then John 18, 39, Luke doesn't include this. Pilate says, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Pilate sees this as a no-brainer. There's a custom in place at the time of the Passover for the kindness to the people of Israel in Jerusalem that the Roman government would release a prisoner. I don't know that the people ever got a pick in the past. This is Pilate's call. But Pilate has miscalculated the situation. Verses 18 through 21, the disapproving outcry. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Now this is starting to become a mob scene. This hatred for Jesus. And sometimes you'll run across that in our culture. Irrational hate for Jesus. Uh, Barabbas 
was a real threat to Rome. He had been an insurrectionist, a rebel, a, a real freedom fighter. And somebody lost their life because he was charged with murder. Perhaps it had been a soldier or some official. Um, I would take that Brabus is the real deal. He was guilty, and he deserved the charges against him. But for some in the crowd, Barabbas is a freedom fighter, and he's a hero for some of the people because the Roman government is living in our land and in our nation, and we do not want them here. And they hoped for a Messiah that would throw off that foreign power. And they often were glad to see somebody come along and try to stand up against and so there's some popularity with Barabbas. But, verse 20, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them to again. Not guilty. What has this man done? But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate was an advocate for Jesus for a while. But the crowd pressure is so intense Remember, we talked about this last week. You see what happens when the officials get influenced by the home crowd. The pressure was so great. Remember the Jews stoned people for capital punishment. Crucifixion was very brutal. And it, it brought great suffering. And it was very slow and painful. And that's why the Romans wanted to use it for examples to the people that they ruled. This was horrible for a Jewish person. Crucifixion was so bad that a Roman citizen could not be crucified even if they were a murderer. And yet this crowd... Um, vastly Jewish in nature, wants Jesus to be crucified. And so there's another preliminary verdict, verse 22. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Not guilty. I will have him punished and then released him. Now Jesus didn't deserve to be punished. But Pilate just wants to show a little bit, we're going to slap his hands. That's what Pilate had in mind, at least for first century justice. But political well-being prevails. What needs to keep the powers at be to be happy, what is necessary to keep a political balance, what is necessary to keep political peace, and we see the political expediency in verses 23 and 24. But the loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. The crowd is winning. Pilate, the Roman governor, who has the authority to make the call, he is in charge and he caves in. Because he fears the fallout that will take place if he totally offends this group of people. And so he must choose 
the political expedience. Jesus is not guilty, but he will be crucified. Remember, it was Caiaphas, John 18, 14. He said, Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Rather than the Romans killing a bunch of us for for problems in the city, let's just put all of this onto one and let's have a scapegoat and it will be Jesus. In verse 25, we see the exchange life. So Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison, Barabbas, for the insurrection and murder. And the one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. So Barabbas was on death row. He receives a get-out-of-jail-free card for Jesus. He is pardoned for his wrongdoing. Jesus takes his place. Barabbas for Jesus. Jesus for Barabbas. Barabbas gets a life, at least for a time. We don't know anything about him after this. How long did he live? Jesus gets Barabbas' death. But that's why Jesus came into this world. God has been working out a plan from the beginning to send his son. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This was God's plan. He gave his son that whoever believes him shall not perish and have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Isaiah describes our situation. Go back to the 8th century before Christ. Isaiah 53.6. Isaiah writes, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We humans are like sheep and that we wander away. We wander away from God. Each of us has turned to our own way. We do our own thing. And the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, whom we now know as Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And God God took sin and he put it on Jesus. And Jesus bore the sin of the world. All of us has gone astray. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God of God. Every person born in this world becomes selfish and self-focused. We sin. We, we don't meet God's standards. We fail Him. Isaiah 59 verse 2 tells us what happens with this problem. He says, but your iniquities or your sin have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. You cannot be in a relationship with God because of sin. Humans cannot be in a relationship with God because of sin unless they've accepted God's provision, and that will be Jesus. Romans 6.23, Paul says it this way, for the wages of sin is death. That means that separation. Uh, Your sins have separated you from your God. Wages of sin separate us. Wages are consequences for sin. It's what we deserve. 
And what we deserve is death. And that's not just a physical death. It refers to a spiritual death. It refers to a separation from God for eternity. Jesus called it hell. And it's not just going to sleep and turning the lights off. It's eternally being alive after dead with what the Bible calls uh, punishment, eternal punishment, destruction. Um, it's going to be real suffering. But here is the exchange, just like Jesus did with Barabbas. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. He only needed to do it once, and it was because of who he is. Because he is the son of God and because his life is infinitely valuable and able to pay for all sin for all time. No matter how big the sin penalty is, if you add it up, it's always going to be finite. Always, always, always. And Jesus' life is always, always infinitely valuable. He suffered once for sins. The righteous Jesus for the unrighteous, that's me. That's us. Why? To bring you to God, to bring and restore your relationship with God, to bring you into a relationship with God. He was put to death in the body, crucifixion, made alive in the spirit, resurrection, which is each Easter Sunday. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. Well, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He was our substitute. He took over. He filled our spot. We deserved the death. He took it for us. He paid the penalty for the sin penalty of all the world. Now, the amazing thing is, it's paid for for all the world. By the way, church, that's why... He wants us to live on mission and to take his message to everybody so that everybody can hear it and everybody can respond to it by faith. There's one requirement that God has for us when it comes to this eternal salvation, this beginning a relationship with God forever. John 3.36 puts it this way. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever could be you. For me, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ on September 29, 1974, about 4.30 in the morning. Ask me how I know. I was there. And I already was a, an adult who had been an atheist. So I just didn't grow up with this. I had to encounter it, and it changed my life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Think about the responses to Jesus. There were the religious leaders. They were passionately against Jesus. They hated him. There was Herod. Herod wanted Jesus to do a trick for him. Herod wanted, him to make, wanted Jesus to make him feel good. There were the, the crowd. They were fickle. Once they're for and once they're against... And there's Pilate, he's indecisive, he's neutral, he thinks in his head that Jesus is innocent, but finally he does nothing to protect Jesus. He doesn't engage. 
How will you respond? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath in judging sin remains on those who do not place their faith in Christ. How do you respond to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for you? On March 2nd, 2013, Mikio Okada picked up his daughter, Natsume, from school on Japan's Hokkaido Island. It was snowing heavily with blizzard conditions. It was a short distance, but their truck became stranded in the heavy snow. In fact, there were several feet of snow on this occasion. And he called relatives about 4 p.m. to alert them of his predicament. He told them that they would walk the short distance from the truck to their house. It was just over a half a mile. But they only got about 300 yards. And they were discovered the next day, Sunday morning. And they found that Mr. Okada and his daughter were hunched down in the snow up against a warehouse wall. Dad had taken off his coat and covered his daughter, and then he put his body over her, and he froze to death. And she lived. And he gave his life so that his daughter might live. Sacrificial love of a parent. And that's what Jesus did for us. That's what God the Father did for us in providing his son. Jesus laid down his life to cover us to cover our sin, to pay for it all. He experienced death so that we might have life. The offer today is just as valid today as it was in the first century. Whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. It's about trusting Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. He died to pay the penalty for your sin. Your sin penalty is paid for. Do you believe that? Can you trust him for that? And he wants you to become a follower of Jesus. He wants you to learn to follow him after you place your faith in Christ. But it's by your faith in Christ that you're saved from your sin. It's by your faith in Christ, what Jesus did, that heaven is your home that all your sins are forgiven. I'd like to give an opportunity this morning as we just close our time. If there's anybody here who has never placed their faith in Christ, I know many of you have, have already placed your faith in Christ, and perhaps there are some here who have not yet. I want to give us an opportunity. And one of the ways that you can express your faith in Christ is through a prayer. And the prayer can be really simple. It's talking to God. And I'm going to go through a prayer two times. And the first time I want to go through the prayer just so you understand what I'm talking about so there's like no tricks or does this make sense to you? And after I do that, I want us to bow our heads together and we'll pray it um, just uh, silently from your heart, okay? So here's the prayer. It's going to be something this simple. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I'm just agreeing with God on how he sees us. I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you that Jesus died for me. He took my place. I deserve the death. He took the death. And I trust him right now. I believe right now. I'm telling God that. 
that I, I believe him. And I want Jesus to help me now. Jesus is alive. He's at the right hand of the Father right now. I want Jesus to help me be the person he wants me to be. I need help just one day at a time. I'm not perfect, and I'm never going to be perfect until heaven, but I do need Jesus' help each day. Okay, so that's a long prayer. I'm not going to do all that, but that's the gist of it, okay? So now I want us just to, everybody just bow your heads. And um, if you can pray this silently from your own heart. If this prayer made sense to you, and uh, if you have never placed your faith in Christ before, I want you to pray with me just silently from your heart. And the rest of you can just all pray for us. Um, dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I thank you that Jesus Christ died for me. He died in my place because I deserve that. And I trust Jesus right now. I believe. I trust him right now to pay for my sins. Thank you. And God, I just recognize that I need Jesus to help me to become the person that he wants me to be. So please help me. Now, if you just prayed that prayer with me, with everybody's head still down, if you prayed that prayer with me, would you just slip up your hand so I could see? If you prayed along with me, just slip up your hand. All right. Anybody else? Okay, thank you. Hands down. Father, I'm grateful for uh, the good news, for the gospel that you sent your son Jesus and that he died for me, that he died for all people, for every person in this room. And God, I pray for those um, who uh, indicated this morning that they did place their faith. And there may be even some here who did not want to raise their hand, but they did pray. And I pray, Father, that uh, you will show yourself strong, that they will experience the forgiveness of sins, that they'll know that, God, you have forgiven their sins, that they might experience your presence, that they may have a confidence about the future, give them a desire to continue to know and to grow. And God, for all of us, we just recognize you've given us a great mission. May we humbly live in a way that advances the cause of Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.